Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay, speaking to you from Toronto. As regular listeners know, this podcast typically features me and my London-based colleague, Toby Young, interviewing all manner of writers, academics, activists, and intellectuals. But every once in a blue moon, the news cycle turns in a way that leads to Toby and I interviewing each other, which is what's happening in this episode. By way of background, last week I wrote a lengthy and ambitious article for Quillette titled COVID-19 Super Spreader Events in 28 Countries, Critical Patterns and Lessons, which, as the title suggests, contained an analysis of dozens of different major coronavirus contagion events around the world, with a focus on the actual human behaviors involved in these episodes. It's the sort of large-scale epidemiological study that I'd assumed had already been done by professional public health officials. But amazingly, I couldn't find anything directly on point in the published literature, so I did the study myself, using the information sources I had at hand. As I confessed to Toby in the interview you're going to hear, I was apprehensive about the response, since my academic technical background as a scientist is in computer modeling, fluid dynamics, and thermodynamics, and not public health. But to my pleasant surprise, the article's been well-received. It's even been tweeted out appreciatively by real-live epidemiologists. And in this podcast, I talked to Toby about how I wrote the piece and what implications it might have for public health. As I note in the article, and as Toby and I will be reminding listeners, what you're going to hear in this podcast is a discussion between two journalists. We each have our own opinions about COVID-19 lockdowns and public health, but at the end of the day, what you'll hear is just that our opinions. We're not doctors, and this isn't medical advice. You should obey local policies as instructed. So with those caveats out of the way, here are excerpts from my conversation with Quillette colleague Toby Young, which we recorded on Monday, April 27th. You published a piece on super spreader events, or SSE, which is the code you use to describe them. It's had a huge amount of people reading it. Tell us a bit about that piece. This was one of those pieces that I kept waiting for somebody else to write it. I kept waiting for an epidemiologist to write it or a virologist or a public health expert because, as I confess at several points in the piece, I am none of those things. I was interested in the broad pattern by which coronavirus is transmitted from person to person. And I don't mean at the scale of nations because I'd seen a a ton of articles and I know, Toby, that you're very interested in the modeling on a national level. I'd seen a lot of that. I'd also seen a lot of articles about how the disease exists at the level of nucleic acids and the actual composition, the genetic composition of the virus, which it it was sequenced very early in the pandemic. What I hadn't seen was a lot of close studies of what are the kind of behaviors that lead to rapid transmission. And even the articles that focused on, say, sports events or concerts or business trips where the disease had spread rapidly... They tended to be journalistic, and the focus was on the people involved. Like, for instance, in the UK, there was this guy named Steve Walsh who traveled around. I think that's his name. He traveled around in late January, 
spread the disease in a, in a few different countries, unwittingly, of course. And there was a lot of focus on him and his biographical details and on other so-called super spreaders. But there was very little focus on what were their activities? What were they doing? How close were they to people? And that's what I was interested in because that's what we can modify. We don't always have to be in lockdown all the time, but we can modify how close we are to people and what kind of activities we're doing with other people. That was my focus. And I didn't see any other international study of it. So I created one myself. To put this in a broader context, you began your piece by talking about the debate amongst epidemiologists and virologists and others about how the disease is transmitted. And you ran a couple of theories up the flagpole. One theory has it that it's transmitted by large droplets. Another theory is that there's aerosol transmission taking place. And your conclusion, looking at these different super spreader events, is that, and you were very careful not to be too definitive in your conclusion, but on the face of it, it looks as though there isn't much evidence for aerosol transmission because these super spreader events had a particular characteristic which suggested that droplet transmission was the main cause. Broadly speaking, since the late 19th century, it's been known that when you have respiratory diseases and certain other kinds of diseases, the transmission often follows two patterns. One is that when we breathe, we create very, very fine particles that stay in the air sometimes for hours in the form of extremely fine aerosols. And those can drift around and infect people. And in the case of diseases like measles, sometimes just being in the same room as a person, even you know 20 or 30 feet away, even if they're not coughing or sneezing, you can get that disease because of the, the fine aerosol particles. In other cases, it's larger droplets that tend to emit when you're sneezing or coughing or singing or in an agitated state, maybe you're at the gym. Those large droplets tend to be governed more by Newtonian mechanics. They fall to earth fairly immediately, although sometimes they can travel a large distance first. And since the 19th century, it's been known that these two mechanisms, depending on the disease, one can be dominant and it's important to know in the case of COVID-19, which of the two mechanisms is at play, because the public health measures you're going to enact are going to be very different. Masks are going to be much more useful against large droplets. And if it's the case of aerosols, we're going to have to focus on things like ventilation and such, because masks might not help us that much, and distancing might not help us that much, because the normal process of gas diffusion can bring these aerosols across a huge room. And yet, I was struck by how little curiosity there seemed to be among public health officials about this. I'm sure behind closed doors, there was a lot of curiosity. But in the public statements, if you looked at what they were asking us to do, it showed they had no idea which of these two mechanisms were dominant. Yet, in the examples I looked at, at least in super spreader events, these are large clusters, which is not responsible for all events. By and large, the events I looked at were not consistent with the idea that it was fine aerosols transmitting this disease. All seemed, or almost all seemed, to point in the direction of large droplets that were transmitted from one person to another when they were at close range in an indoor environment, almost invariably in some kind of socially agitated or intimate context, uh, or sports, or cheering, singing. Although, as I noted, this is not a controlled scientific study. Uh, a lot of my research was based on journalistic accounts. As someone who is a lockdown skeptic, as I am, this sounds, broadly speaking, quite helpful. It suggests that if we continue to wear masks and if we keep two metres apart, 
then we don't have to adopt some of the other more extreme social distancing measures that government across the world have imposed on their citizens, such as remaining in our homes unless we have a reasonable excuse for leaving our homes. But it's a mixed bag because you also seem to be saying that if we allowed sporting events to resume, uh, music concerts, if we allowed schools to reopen even, that could lead to a rise in infections. Is that broadly right? However you open the economy, however you open schools, however you open public spaces, there's always going to be some rise in infections. The question is, will it be a large rise or a small rise? I don't consider myself a lockdown skeptic per se. However, what I do note is that there are certain activities that are now banned in many countries that are completely safe. And there are certain activities that are banned now that I don't think will be safe for months or even years. If you accept the idea that there is at least a larger possibility of communicating this disease through the kind of mechanism I've been talking about, you know, large droplets, close, intimate social contact. Right now, I would go to a public park. This is my behavior. You know, I'm not a public health specialist. I would go to a park. I, I would pass people in the street. I don't care about stuff like that. That's not how you're going to get the disease. However, going to a sports event and being around thousands of other cheering fans, screaming, yelling, cheering, I would not do that at all. I would not join a singing group. I would not go to a funeral or a religious service where I'm tightly packed in with people who are praying or grieving, sobbing. So a lot of the public health rules that we have now are a good idea in terms of governing those kind of activities. But let's say you have an outdoor funeral. Uh, in some parts of Canada, you can only have five people at a funeral. I think these rules are silly because a funeral with five people can be dangerous if people are engaged in certain kinds of behavior, and a funeral with 500 people can be perfectly safe if it's outdoor and everyone is spaced out apart and not engaging in those behaviors. It's not the total number of people at the funeral that's meaningful. It's the kind of behaviors that people are engaged in at the funeral. It's time for a short message from Blinkist. If you're the type of person who reads Quillette and listens to the Quillette podcast, you also might be the sort of person who reads a lot of books. But like me, you probably never have enough time to read quite as many as you'd like. And that's where Blinkist comes in. Open the Blinkist app on your phone, tablet, or browser, and suddenly you're able to read or listen to expert 15-minute summaries of popular nonfiction books. For one low price, you get unlimited access to the entire Blinkist library. There are 12 million people using Blinkist. In my case, I listen to Blinkist when I walk my dog, which usually takes about 15 minutes. That's one whole book. Go through the Blinkist catalog and you'll find all sorts of big brain books like Upheaval by Jared Diamond and Sapiens by Yuval Noel Harari. But they've also got those business books you see in airport swivel racks, not to mention the Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels, and of course, 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. In some cases, the Blinkist summary is just enough for me. Other times, I'm so interested that I go out and buy the book and read it cover to cover. Either way, thanks to Blinkist, I know which books deserve my time most. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Quillette. Try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Quillette to start your free seven-day trial at 25% off. And now, back to our podcast. One thing I picked up from your 
analysis is that the super spreader events were more likely to occur in indoor environments, particularly hot, sweaty environments like the Apres ski bar in the Austrian ski resort. But when people were crowded together in the same way, but in outdoor environments, there was much less risk of infection. And that was interesting. It tallied with a paper I read recently, which showed that in outdoor hospitals where victims of the Spanish flu were treated in 1918-1919, the survival rate, both amongst the patients and the staff, was far higher than in indoor hospitals. Did you think that that means that we could allow some sporting events to resume, provided they're outside? So I didn't know about that study you mentioned from the Spanish flu era. That's very interesting. It's absolutely true that there are very, very few outdoor super spreader events that I can find in the literature. There was a soccer game February 19th in uh, Milan that it was a semi-outdoor stadium and that was considered a super spreader event. It's not the outdoor aspect that magically makes something safe. What makes it safer is that when people are outdoors, usually they're more spaced out, they're less packed in. Usually there's some kind of wind which whisks away the particles so the particles aren't lingering around in the air for hours and hours and hours. It's 100% safe, I think, to play tennis, for instance, outdoors, if you're 50 feet away from the other person. On the other hand, would I play, say, street hockey, even though that's an outdoor activity? I probably wouldn't play street hockey because you're often jammed into the corner fighting for the ball. People are breathing down each other's necks. There's plenty of opportunity for exactly the kind of contagion I've been talking about, even though you happen to be outdoors. My wife is a tennis player. And I have to say, she completely agrees. Um, one of the interesting findings of your survey of super spreader events is that there didn't seem to be any events in aircraft. There was one super spreader who was a flight attendant, but it looks as though he infected lots of other people at social events and not in the course of doing his work on planes. Why is if indoor environments are common to these super spreader events and given how closely packed together people are, how come you didn't find any super spreader events on aeroplanes? In general, I found very few super spreader events in contexts where people, even if they were tightly packed, where they were not face to face and where they were not generally places where people raised their voice or acted in an agitated manner. So... Uh, an airplane, a theater, a you know, movie theater, symphony, opera. And those those latter examples may seem rarefied or snobbish, but they're important because New York City was a huge hotspot. And there are thousands of people who, who went to those events. And contact tracing is, is easy for those events because there's a lot of subscribers. So if there were a huge outbreak in those events, I think we'd know about it. But generally, in any kind of context, even when people were packed in tightly in indoor environments... If they weren't screaming or yelling or singing or cheering, generally speaking, it was very difficult in the literature to find an example of that sort of thing. Uh, you know, I found one or two examples. It was a call center in South Korea and another in Jamaica uh, where I found an example of super spreader events. But sitting next to somebody, even for hours at a time, does not seem to lend itself to super spreader events based on this admittedly imperfect, unscientific survey I made. Uh, the other thing I will say, the, the New Zealand example, because the flight attendant you mentioned, that that's a, uh, Air New Zealand, I think it's called. Yes, that person became infected and transmitted the disease to a lot of other people but did so at a party, which I found very interesting. And I was actually surprised that this person wasn't associated with more 
infections on aircraft because if you look at the way flight attendants deal with people on aircraft sometimes because of the cabin noise they have to lean in very close to talk to them so that is the kind of behavior that one would expect would give the disease but the contact tracing that the new zealand government did as far as i know wasn't associated with any onboard infections there have been some infections reported on aircraft there was a woman in vietnam who i think infected somebody on an aircraft But these examples were so rare that they registered in my memory. There was another example. Someone sent me an article. It was a very interesting article. It was a study of known airline industry staff who have become infected with COVID-19 in the United States. And at the time, I think this is, uh, there were 15 or 16 infections. But when I went into the article itself, it was interesting. A lot of the infections were things like ground crew and people who worked in cargo and stuff like that. If it were the case that being on an airplane were a huge risk for SSEs, you would expect mass infection among flight attendants. You know, and to be fair, there were some cases of flight attendants having COVID-19, but it wasn't as if it was a pandemic among them disproportionately. It seemed to affect them and the ground crew in the same way it affects the general population, which is not consistent with the idea that being on board an aircraft for hours at a time, packed like sardines, is going to give you the disease as I say, because the behavior you're expected to exhibit on a plane is not the kind of behavior that leads to loud, agitated, face-to-face meetings, it seemed to spread the disease fastest. You began by saying that you're not an epidemiologist, you're not a virologist, you're not a professor of medicine. Do you feel a little bit inhibited about weighing into this fairly complicated area dominated by experts who've been studying infectious diseases for decades. Do you feel a bit inhibited? Often people will respond to a point made by you or by me by saying, well, what do you know about it? You know, you're just a journalist. How do you reply to those sorts of points? Oh, yeah, I was terrified. Uh, when, so when I posted the article, I, I was scared that someone would reply and say, I'm an epidemiologist or I'm a virologist or something, and you overlook this really basic thing. And I was really gratified that that wasn't the response at all. Uh, in fact, I got several nice notes from epidemiologists, people who study the spread of disease. Some public health experts uh, retweeted me and promoted it, including uh, Jeffrey Flyer, who's a former dean of the Harvard Medical School, and an, he's an endocrinologist. Like a lot of people, like a lot of journalists, I've spent the last month or two endlessly reading these peer-reviewed articles about the disease. My own scientific expertise is in the field of fluid dynamics and thermodynamics and mass transfer, which are not directly on point for the health sciences aspect of it. But I did have some technical point of entry. I've done a lot of computer modeling in my former life as an engineer. I did have some capacity to understand the technical aspects of the article. Uh, And I was gratified that at least I had educated myself enough about the health sciences aspect that people who are legitimate experts in these areas, their response was not to say, I've overlooked some basic thing. And some of them seemed quite gratified that I did this. So uh, that was very rewarding that I got that response. I, I was scared I would get the opposite response. A short message from our commercial supporters at BetterHelp, an online counseling service that helps people become happier and more productive. By logging on at BetterHelp, You can connect with your professional licensed counselor in a safe and private online environment according to your own pace and schedule, using secure video or phone sessions, as well as online chat and text, and all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. Some of the specialties of BetterHelp counselors include depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationship problems, sleep trouble, and trauma. 
BetterHelp uses a network of 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 U.S. states. And you can switch therapists at no charge to make sure you find the right fit. Financial aid is available for those who qualify. And of course, anything you share with the professionals at BetterHelp is strictly confidential. Quillette podcast listeners get 10% off their first month service by using the discount code Quillette. If you'd like to know more, please go to betterhelp.com, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P slash Quillette. That's betterhelp.com slash Quillette. And now back to our podcast. And am I right in thinking that you've now passed on your data to a group of scientists who are trying to better understand how COVID-19 spreads? My original list that I had, I think I had 58 super spreader events. And then, as I hoped and expected, people from around the world sent me their own examples that I had not been able to access or, or had overlooked. Some people sent me examples from Myanmar, from Finland, First Nations community, as we call it in Canada. This one happened to be in Arizona. I got examples from Uruguay. So I was able to to double the size of my database. Doing these updates made me realize this is not sustainable. I'm a complete amateur when it comes to this kind of data collection. I was very gratified when someone from uh, an international group that is monitoring COVID-19 approached me and asked if they could... They could have the list and they could help develop it. And I immediately said, yes, please do this. Because it's not, it's not something that I, I ever intended to keep doing forever. You know, hopefully a couple weeks from now, this will be much less relevant because people understand the disease better. It's, it's not something I have the formal training to do. And, and I would love to see this kind of research be helpful to people who truly are trained public health officials and who could make the world safer with information like this. Do you sometimes think that for people like us, not being able to go out to work, it's not a cost for us. We work from home anyway. Actually, for journalists, particularly journalists interested in science and who are used to writing about scientific subjects like this with public policy implications, do you sometimes feel a bit guilty that for people like us, this is actually a bit of a boon? Um, And you see all these other people suffering in in awful ways because they can't go out to work, because um, even if they're journalists, this is so outside their field of expertise, they don't really know how to address it. They feel inhibited about trying to write something about it because they have no background in the subject. Do you sometimes feel a bit guilty? I have what I think might be called the professional version of survivor's guilt, which is the sense that I can do my job from from anywhere. I can be in a in a cafe or or at home or in an office environment and because I edit and write and research for a living, I can do it anywhere. And unfortunately in journalism more generally, bad news often creates heightened reader interest. This is something that's not particular to COVID-19. It's something that has always existed, I think, in journalism. And so it's there's a dark irony. The worse the news is sometimes, the more journalists get readers for their articles. And I get survivor's guilt professionally when I tour my neighborhood and I, I see all these restaurants, which I know usually are full of hardworking people. A lot of them are closed. The massage place down the road, which, of course, that was one of the first places to close, the the barber who cuts my hair, all these places, they can't do their work from home. You know, you can't cut someone's hair over YouTube. 
I know these people are hurting. Yeah, it does. It registers as guilt that I've become very intellectually engaged in this horrible thing that's not just hurting people economically, of course, it's killing tens of thousands of people around the world. I've been very fortunate my family hasn't been affected by that. And I've been able to live my life. I feel guilty about that every day. I look forward to your next piece. I thought the, uh, the super spreader piece was really, really interesting. Great work. Thank you very much. I look forward to going back to writing about things like board games uh, and such. <laughs> I hope everything returns to normal in a way that renders all my research on the subject completely moot as soon as possible. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.